Lord, we thank you that by your grace we can understand your word. I pray, Lord, today that you would be uh, my strength in my weakness. I pray, Lord, that we would understand these truths and God, that they would radically change the way we look at you, the way we look at our lives. Lord, as we come to your word, I pray that you teach us. I pray that we would exalt you. I pray, God, that we would corporately worship you by receiving the good news with belief. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you got your Bibles this morning, Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. I, what we're going to do, last week we started a message entitled Encouragement in the Midst of Warning. Encouragement in the Midst of Warning. And, and, and we're going to continue with that. We're, I want to just briefly review. We've been looking at observations, and I want to give you a sense of not only where we've been, but where we're going this morning. Um, we started by looking at the fact that this is a purposeful warning, a purposeful warning, meaning that the warnings have a purpose in the life of the Christian. They're not just passages for the apostate. They're passages for the believer, and they're meant to enable us to safely arrive at our destination. Uh, the warnings in the Bible serve as a purpose in so many different ways, but they serve as a sanctifying purifying way in the life of the Christian. So there's a purposeful warning that's happening within all of the warnings of Hebrews, and in this passage, we see one yet again. The second observation that we have looked at is, is that we see a consequential rejection. It's filled with consequences, but if you look at the passage over and over, you see these phrases that demonstrate a rejection that is taking place by some of the people in the community um, of, of the book of Hebrews that, right, that the author's writing to, and he's warning them. He's warning them, and he's saying, look, don't you go that route. You know, we not only see a consequential rejection, we see a terrifying judgment, a terrifying judgment. And what he does here, this is one of the really applicable places to see the way we ought to respond if we are in a place of neutrality or rejection of Christ. We don't want to think about the coming of the Lord. The coming of the Lord brings comfort to those who've trusted in Christ, but the coming of the Lord is horrible for those who've rejected Christ. It is a time of wrath. It is a time of fury. It is a time of incredible judgment. And, and again, you know, when we think about the judgment of God, we have to remember the character of God. We have to remember that we can't understand how God rightfully judges until we understand appropriately his holiness, his character, his love. And it leads us to see the incredible grace and kindness of God in Jesus Christ, that he became sin who knew no sin that we might become the righteousness of God in him. But, but as we look at that, we, we then rolled into an encouragement, an encouraging exhortation. It's interesting because, you know, he comes into this, and now he begins to use all of this in great encouragement. And you see, we read there in the passage a remarkable phrase. Uh, 
Look at verse 35, and let's read down into the text we're going to go to this morning. Verse 35, therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls." Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So this morning, we're going to continue in this fourth observation, an encouraging exhortation an encouraging exhortation. And he begins this whole section there in verse 32. And I want to remind you what he says. He says, recall, recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Isn't it interesting? These were people that faced the same propensity to wonder, to wonder away. When we read, you know, when we sing, come thou fount of many blessings, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. Now, it's just by God's saving hand that we do not ultimately wonder but let me ask you something this morning. Have you grown, ever grown discouraged and weary in your Christian faith and were wondering and not taking heed to what you've heard? Anybody in here besides me? See, we got to get real with each other. And we have to understand, I, I, one of my concerns as your pastor is that we never get into a place where the norm and the way that we process things as a church is just coming together for sermons through the Bible, where we go, wow, isn't that some amazing, isn't that amazing passage? Isn't that amazing truth? But I pray that we would be a people on a journey and that we would be a people that are literally growing in maturity in Christ, that literally Christ is being formed in and amongst us. And that as we come together, we're not just hearing these sermons. I'm not just preaching sermons, but we're being shaped by this truth. And what defines us as a community is that we are a group of people who are dealing with the text, repenting because of the reality of the text, and as a result, we are being formed and we are growing up into Jesus. What's the alternative? The alternative is scary. We become hearers who deceive themselves, who simply come and hear and are not changed and become the very people that he warns the Christians in Hebrews about. Recall, he says, remember the former days after you were enlightened. You see, initially, if I told you he was writing to a group of Christians who were going through some crazy thoughts in their head, who at the result of persecution, we see what they had gone through. But these were people that, had exemplified remarkable faith. These are people that had shown great fruit. 
Recall the former days. You remember we looked at Revelation. We're in those uh, warnings to the churches. And one of them, Revelation 3.3, remember then what you received and heard. Keep it and repent. And we saw another one there in Revelation 2.5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent. It's the idea of you got to remember and look back. And just like the children of Israel used the stones of remembrance. On Wednesday night, some of your groups looked at the idea of how the Old Testament is filled with ways that were practical for the children of Israel to remember the faithfulness of God. And so often, they were instructed to build an altar. And so often, they were instructed, you know, with stones. They, they were instructed because they needed to remember how God had provided. They needed to remember how God had been faithful, how God had brought them through. And so here it's interesting. The author says, I want you to look back and I want you to consider after you were enlightened. We talked about that a little last time. Remarkable truth of what takes place in the life of a Christian where God opens their eyes. And sometimes isn't it important to go back and remember the stories of our past in Christ Jesus and gain encouragement as we look back and say, wow. Look at how God was faithful in my life. Look at how God brought me through that. And here he's encouraging them. You endured a hard struggle with sufferings. This phrase is really fascinating. The struggle is the idea of contest or exercise. It's, it's 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 an extreme athletic contest. They went through a hard struggle. They went through a hard struggle with sufferings. I tell you, it says in Philippians, we've not only been granted to believe, but we've been granted to suffer. But sometimes, I don't know about you, but a lot of times where the rubber meets the road in our journey of faith is when faith intersects with suffering. You go through suffering, you can't understand what's happening. You go through suffering and you can't see what the plan of God is and what are you left with. You have to trust in the character of God in the midst of your pain. And one thing that we have to be careful of as a church is that we're all, you know, it's that James reality. We're either in a trial, we're coming out of a trial, or we're getting ready to go into a trial. That's the reality of the Christian existence. And one thing we have to be reminded of is that in times of suffering, we're tempted to think goofy. We're tempted to get sideways in our heart and our minds. And what we're seeing here, it's interesting because we're getting ready to get into a passage that I've always thought was a little difficult, the beginning of Hebrews 11, even though it's so profound, but I've never seen it in context. It's just one, it's a refrigerator passage. And it's a wonderful refrigerator passage. But do you notice that Hebrews 11 is following this idea of remember after you were enlightened. Remember what God has done. Don't shrink back. Keep going by faith. And then he says, let me give you a description. Let me give you an explanation of what this faith is all about. He's just continuing along. Recall the former days after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. They they had gone through it. 
And it almost implies here that there were times when they were the object of scorn and they had experienced that. There were times when they were running to the aid who had been, the aid of those who had been publicly scorned. They, they were sometimes being partners with those so treated. Maybe they were bringing them clothes. Maybe they were bringing them food in prison. Maybe they were just sticking their neck out to say, I'm with them. I care for them. I'm coming to their aid. And they were marginalized. They were maligned. They were insulted. They were rejected. And it reminds you of Matthew 25, where Jesus says, For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And he's saying, look, not only had you gone through the public ridicule, but in many cases, some of you had done the very thing that Matthew 25 reveals. That they had been faithful to their brothers and sisters in Christ out of their love for Jesus. And then he says something marvelous in verse 34. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Wow. They joyfully accepted it. Their primary concern wasn't lawsuits and standing for their rights and going against the government. What was happening in their life as they went through persecution was that they were recognizing that this was an enduring manifestation of the grace of God in their life. They understood something. It's just like the passage that Stan read last week on how the apostles were joyful in their suffering because they counted it an honor to suffer for his name. And what happens? They had compassion. They, they reached out. They had empathy. They, they accepted the plundering of their property. They knew something. They knew, and I'll tell you a hint here, what they knew was the very reality of what we're getting ready to look at in chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. They knew something. Wait a minute. How do you know this? How does a future reality, how does a spiritual reality become a present experience? How? By faith, they knew, I'm adding the words by faith, but I think in the context, it's, 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 it's provided, it's, it's, it's suggested, is what I meant to say. They knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. They knew that Christ was better. They knew that the things of this earth, it, it's sort of, don't we all struggle? And why is it that Jesus' words in Matthew 7 ring such a bell with our hearts? Because don't we struggle with storing up treasures on earth more than storing up treasures in heaven? I think if anybody said, no, I don't struggle with that, we want to sit down and talk to that person this morning, don't we? We're like, what world are you in? But they were in a world where they were tempted to go after things of this earth. But what happened? Through the grace of God, they trusted in eternal realities. They trusted in the unseen. They trusted in the invisible. They trusted in what God had promised. And God had brought them to the reality that the possession of Christ was greater than earthly goods that could be plundered. I tell you, isn't it amazing? This confronts our idols. You know, what are you treasuring more than Christ? 
Are you treasuring your money? Are you treasuring your house? Are you treasuring your items? Are you treasuring your 401k? Are you treasuring all that you have? Is it so precious to you that you can't even imagine how it could somehow be lesser than Christ? It's something that that's where you are this morning. Just humble yourself in this passage and remember it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. Faith comes by hearing, hearing through the word of Christ. It's not being guilted into something this morning that you're gonna do better. It's by seeing the beauty of Christ. Because isn't it amazing? Through the word of God, God begins to change what we love. And when we begin to see the beauty of Christ, then by the grace of God, then and only then are we then compelled to do what? Store up treasures in heaven because Jesus is a greater possession. I love that. It's not being beat up, ridiculed, told to do better that you're gonna change. It's by seeing the beauty and the wonder of Christ. And what we see here is he's better. And we looked at that last time. There's a better possession we learn in this passage, but it relates to so much of what we see in Hebrews 1. We see he's better than angels. Hebrews 6, we see the reality of better things. Hebrews 7, a better hope. Hebrews 7, a better covenant. Hebrews 8, better promises. Hebrews 9, better sacrifices. Hebrews 10, better possession all the way through. And then he says, and an abiding one. The word abiding means you had a perpetual one, one that remains, one that endures, one that's forever, one that's perpetual. I love this. It's, uh, you've got something that they can't take away from you and you have something that God has promised you. But again, we're jumping into 11, but it's hinging on 11. It's almost like, you know, faith is the, substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And what's happening already as we get ready to go into chapter 11, faithful Christians in the past have experienced the grace of God in their life and circumstances and suffering through which they were enabled to trust in the future promises of God and in their trust of the future promises of God, the grace of Christ enabled them to see those future realities in the present. And because they saw them in the present, it affected the way they endured in the present. It affected the way they lived. But then we see the therefore. This is huge. Look at verse 35. Therefore, you who are now tempted to do the unthinkable. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. It's as if he's saying, you've shown enduring fruit in your past. Keep going, keep going. You see, I love this because what happens in the life of a Christian, we could go around the room, but how many times as a pastor, how many times over the last 14 years in this church can I speak to the, the, the testifying or can I testify to the faithful pursuing hand of God in my life where I was either toying with sin, whether I was flirting with going another direction in my heart, in my life, in my direction, and what happened? The Spirit of God would not 
ultimately let me continue there. The Spirit of God said, what are you doing? And what happened? So often it was in a warning text that the Spirit of God beckoned me. No, keep going. Keep going. Keep running. Keep running. Keep running. This morning, keep running. Keep going. Keep enduring. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, and it does have a great reward. We could go through the scripture, and we could see the rewards that are going to be ours because of the inheritance in Christ, the rewards at the judgment seat of, of Christ. And, 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 and what we see in all those realities is the promise of faithfulness, the promise of reward, the promise of an inheritance and every time so often for the Christian that the rewards are brought up or that the judgment is brought up for the Christian, because we talked about last time, there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We don't have to fear. We don't, we're not coming before him in the judge of the wrathful judge. We're coming to him actually as a judgment of rewards. And it's meant to compel us to godliness. It's meant to remind us to keep going. It's meant to encourage us in godliness and morality and, and truthfulness. And he uses this word confidence over and over. Don't throw away your confidence. It's used in chapter 3, verse 6, where he says, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence. Hebrews 4, 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Hebrews 10, 19, before this, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence, and now he's saying, look, don't throw away your confidence. He's your great high priest. He's enabled you to come near. He's enabled you to draw nigh. Keep going. Keep running. Don't go back. Don't go back. Don't go back. It has a great reward. It, it just keeps moving and moving and moving. I love this. One commentator said, the boldness shown by the community is a title deed that assures them that they will be greatly rewarded. And just as their earlier confidence was oriented to the future with its better and lasting possession, so here too their boldness should be directed to the great reward on the final day. Keep going, keep going, keep going. For you have need of endurance, verse 36, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. I love this. For you have need of endurance. That word, it's just, I was reading in one lexicon. It said, it's associated with hope. To the, it refers to the quality of character which does not allow one to surrender to circumstances or succumb under trial. It's the word in James. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And what is that word endurance? It's that word that means to bear up under, to bear up under something. And what is he saying here? You have need to bear up under what you're going through right now. Anybody in here going through something really tough, really, really tough, where you're tempted to think in a natural way, the way of the world, where you're tempted to get bitter, you're tempted to get frustrated, you're tempted not to walk by faith. What do you need right now? You need to endure. You need to endure and to trust God and his word. That's what I need in those situations. He says, you have need of this endurance so that when you've done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. I love this because throughout this section, you're gonna see words like promise. You're gonna see the idea of hope. 
you're going to see the idea of faith, and it's all going to connect. These promises are the basis of our hope. This faith enabled by God is the basis by which that hope becomes a present reality within our heart and our life. It keeps going on and on and on. You know, he says in verse 37, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. So it's not only, you know, in a sense, you have to remember the judgment of God. And in a warning passage, he's like, look, the, the judge is coming. But, but for believers, it, it's a purifying motivation. And so it's interesting because the Holy Spirit takes a passage like verse 37, and it's sort of like if the shoe fits, wear it. It's like they say often to pastors, when some people come into your office, what they need desperately is they need comfort. When some people come into your office, they don't need comfort at all. They need warning. They need warning. And isn't it interesting because here, again, but you could say, but wait a minute, you mean to tell me that the Christian sometimes is in your office, therefore they need comfort. The unbelievers in your office, therefore sometimes they need warning. Well, not necessarily, because God uses warning in the life of the Christian. God uses comfort in the life of the Christian. The promises are related to our assurance. The warnings are related to our endurance. And so God uses it. And I guess, again, we sit back and we go, wow, what an amazing thing. We look at a passage like Hebrews 10 and 11, and I, I don't know about you, but if you've walked with God for any period of time, it's amazing how he uses different things in different ways in his word. And you know what it goes back to? The faithfulness of God. The faithfulness of God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. And those who are being led are being led by his faithful hand through various means in his word. But he's calling them here. He's calling them to keep going. So we look at verse 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith. Now you may be thinking, why is Hebrews 11 going into faith? Well, because he's setting it up right here. He's saying, look, I need you to endure. Don't shrink back. Don't, don't shrink back. I, want, I call you to live by faith. My righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. This is a quotation out of Habakkuk, chapter 2, verse 4. It's interesting because the context of Habakkuk was a time where the Jews were going to go through unthinkable judgment at the hand of the Babylonians. And yet in the midst of all that they were dealing with, in the midst of all their circumstances, they were encouraged to walk by faith. They were encouraged to trust God. And through all of this, you see some parallels that are really interesting. But then he says, look, my righteous one shall live by faith, trusting God, believing in his promises, walking with God. You know, you've heard that acronym before. It's a good one. Forsaking all, I trust him. It's applicable here. And if he shrinks back, the idea of shrinking back is to cower, it's to withdraw, it's to retreat. And ultimately here, it's speaking of ultimate shrinking back. 
It's speaking of those that would be destroyed, those that would leave the faith, those that would apostatize, those would turn away. He's saying, look, no, those that shrink back are destroyed, but walk by faith. Walk by faith, experience the reward. Experience the reward. So what do we see so far? A purposeful warning, a consequential rejection, a terrifying judgment, an encouraging exhortation. And now number five, we're gonna see a clarifying description. A clarifying description. You may be like, what do you mean? He's gonna clarify for you, what does this life of faith look like? What's a description? What, what is this faith? Like in essence, and I think now what you're going to see is you're going to see clarity even to the verses 35 through 39. You're going to go, wow, that's it. That's exactly what he's calling them to do. Let's look at chapter 11. Let's read verse 1. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation by faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Four statements here is what really wrapped, I wrapped my brain around as I was walking through this. You know, the first one, there's two in verse one. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The second one, the conviction of things not seen. The third one, for by the people of old received their commendation. The fourth one, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. And he goes on with that. Let's try to slowly unpack these and we'll pick up where we leave off next week. But right in the beginning, what is this? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. Now, faith has been used many times in the book of Hebrews. And now that he brings it up in, in this way, and he's going to give so many examples of faith in chapter 11, probably one that we're, we're all familiar with a little bit. You remember back in uh, chapter 4, verse 2, the author says, For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also. But the word they heard did not profit them, because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Uh, you know, like another passage that jumped out here is Hebrews 6, 12, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And we read in uh, chapter 10, verse 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. And now you're gonna see it. You saw it in verse 38. You see it in verse 39, read 39 with me again. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. I, I love this right here because isn't this similar to Hebrews 6? Go back to chapter 6 with me real quick. I want you to see this because in chapter 6, we went through that warning passage, which was not an easy passage to walk through. But remember when we were going through this passage, we noticed the differences in the pronouns. And the pronouns, were, pronouns he used were radically different as he spoke in verses four through eight. But then he gets in verse nine. He goes through this whole passage of those people who had been enlightened, who had tasted the heavenly gift, who had shared in the Holy Spirit, verse four. In verse five, who had tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then had fallen away. 
And you get through that and you're like, wait a minute, how is there encouragement in this? Well, you get to verse nine and look what he says. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. Isn't that interesting? It's very similar, his pattern here. Now go back with me to our text. And I want you to look at that because think about it. You go to chapter 10, verse 31, and you read 31, 32, 33, 34, and you think about it. They trampled underfoot the Son of God. They profaned the blood of the covenant. What else? They, they, they outraged the spirit of grace. And you're going, whoa, what's going on? What's going on? And then he gets down to verse 39. And when he gets to 39, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed. Wow, I love that. It's like he gives them this warning and the spirit of God is gonna take the warning, is gonna use it in the lives of God's people, just like God's gonna use it in your life, in my life. But then he says, look, but, but you're not those. We're not those who shrink back. And I love this. He uses the we there. We, I love, isn't that cool? It's not just writing to them. The author says, but we are not of those who shrink back. He puts himself in the midst of it and are destroyed, but of those who have fallen, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Faith, faith, faith. So we get into this section. We see some of the places where faith is used. And now we see this first phrase, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's interesting because when you look at this, I was looking at a, uh, a passage, a text comparison in this. Um, and Okay, like to give you an example, you've got some that say, uh, like the New King James or the King James, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. ESV, which I'm preaching out of, says now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And so like, if, if you get confused here, just hang in there with me, because I was confused. So misery loves company. I'm just kidding. But... Sometimes it's, you got to grapple with these things, don't you? And, and one of the things that is the debate here is, the, is this speaking of the objective, that which is absolutely true, or is it speaking of the subjective, that which is experienced by the Christian? So one set of translators take the word subjectively, like the ESV, and they say, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And then the new King James says, no, it's subjective. Now, faith is the substance or the foundation of things hoped for. If you're not with me there, just hang in there. It'll get a little clearer here in a second if your brain works like mine. The, the neat thing here is, is that he's speaking, I think, of the objective, like it's the idea that, as one lexicon says, that that which underlies the apparent, the visible, the reality, the essence, the substance, that which is the basis of something. Thus, once you have the basis of something, it actually affects the subjective, meaning that they actually relate. Kent Hughes says, the subjective certainty in our hearts has an objective solidity to it, real certitude. Now, faith is a solid sureness of substantial certitude of what we hope for. When you look at this passage, um, 
I was reading some quotes. William Lane says, faith celebrates now the reality of the future blessings which make up the objective content of Christian hope. Faith gives to the objects of hope the force of present realities, and it enables the person of faith to enjoy the full certainty that in the future, these realities will be experienced. When you look at this passage, another quote that I read that helped me was one gentleman says, thus it is best to take the clause in chapter 11, verse one, to have an objective sense with the meaning faith gives substance to what is hoped for and not a subjective sense that faith is the assurance that what is hoped for will come to pass. But, but here's the reality. Because faith gives substance to what is hoped for, faith brings assurance. <laughs> that makes sense. One relates to the other. It's fascinating here because we, he goes on and he says, the conviction of things not seen. And you see the same interpretive dilemma in the way it's translated again. The, the ESV, the conviction of things not seen. The New King James goes with the objective route, the evidence of things not seen. But what you begin to see here is, is that he's saying, look, by the grace of God, those things that are future realities become in the present for those with the eyes of faith. You know, this morning, you know, like you go to a Sunday school class and you learn about the promises of God that relate to the future. What you want in your Christian life is not just to know the promises that are in the future. You want to live in the present as if those future promises are present realities. Make sense? It's like uh, the difference between a person saying, well, the Bible tells me that in the future this will happen. But on the other hand, by the grace of God, as I walk by faith, God has brought the reality of those future promises into the present as I live. That, that now that which I can't see is now through the eyes of faith something that I can stand on, something that I can live by, that, that now that faith becomes in that subjective sense the assurance of things hoped for. Why? Because there's a foundation of it. It's reality. It's God's truth. His character is on it. His promises are true. Remember, God made an oath. We already looked at in Hebrews. God doesn't need to make an oath because God cannot lie. But what is he seeking to do in the lives of the Christian? He's seeking to help them to see the certainty through which the objective realities of the gospel are true. And by faith, we begin to walk in the reality that those things that are unseen become something experienced in the here and now. You remember John 20 where Jesus says, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. I love this. Kent Hughes says, so here is the possibility we must consider if we are serious about following Christ. It is possible by faith to live in future certitude. 
to be present at Christ's return, to be present at our resurrection and glorification, to be present in heaven and to reign with him. It is also possible by faith to live in visual certitude, in the supernatural, to see all the mountain flaming with light, to see the traffic between heaven and earth in our behalf. This is what our passage is calling us to, just as Abraham, by faith, put his stock in the future heavenly country, and just as Moses saw him who is invisible. I love this. You know, looking at this, it's like uh, one man said, faith is the objective grounds upon which subjective confidence may be based. It lays hold of what is promised and therefore hoped for as something real and solid, though as yet unseen. Now think about that. Listen to that again. Faith lays hold of what is promised and therefore hoped for as something real and solid, though as yet unseen. You think that would have been a big blessing and benefit to the lives of the people he's writing to? You think it would be a big benefit and blessing to our life today? I tell you, uh, if you lose sight of the future promises of God, you lose sight of hope. If you don't walk by faith, your faith is linked proportionally, hope is linked to proportionally to your faith. And I think one thing that can happen is that believers can literally make faith the exception of the Christian life. Well, that's the exception for radical Christians. They walk by faith. What is Hebrews 11:6 going to tell us? And without faith, it is impossible to please God. The book of Hebrews desires that we not only understand the supremacy of Jesus Christ, but that we understand because Christ is supreme, we can trust his character. We can trust his promises. And we can live by faith in what will come in the future, living out of what's coming in the future in a present reality, in present trust, in present certainty because of the faithfulness and the promise of God. We're gonna unpack this a lot more next week, but I wanna just, as we close today, begin to just get the introduction to this section rolling. And I want us to think about something. We're going to look next time, and we're going to deal with some things about hope. We're going to deal with some things about promises. We're going to see how in the book of Hebrews, how the inheritance is spoken of, and how it relates to so many different realities. And we're going to see the fact that by God's grace, as we trust him, he enables us to lay hold of what is promised. He makes it solid and real in the present, yet though unseen. He's going to mention here in verse 2 and 3, the people of old received their commendation. They received this testimony, their good witness. They were spoken well of. Why? Because they modeled for us the reality of this faith. We're going to see how this relates to the creation. But, But I want us to look at something as we close this morning. I want you to think, 
Ephesians chapter two, if you got a pen, jot these down as we get ready to close. I want you to consider these as we move into next week because we're really gonna jump into a section. Verses one down is gonna just be tremendous. But Ephesians two verses eight and nine speak of faith as a gift. Romans chapter 10 verse 17 speaks of faith that comes from hearing, hearing from the word of Christ. And I would commend you to look at Galatians 5.22 because I think really the most accurate translation of chapter 5 verse 22 is that the fruit of the Spirit is faith. When we look at all of these realities, I want us to think about it because faith is not something that we muster up and, and, and become. It's not something that we, you know, build up on our own. It's by the grace of God. It's through his word. It's through his grace. I told you last week about, a, uh, I was being just real, real with you, letting you in my life. And, and I told you that I've run out of gas a lot of times in my life. And when I was 19, this is a true story. You may not believe it, but it's true. I, I ran out of gas on the interstate coming out of Ottawa. And I got to the top of the hill, and I knew if I could just get to the top of the hill, I had a chance. Because that's a massive hill. I don't know if you've ever driven I-75 from Chattanooga to Knoxville, and you're coming out of Chattanooga, and you go up that hill. It's massive. And I knew if I could get to the top of the hill, I had a chance. And I got to the top of the hill, and I was doing about 70 to 75, and I put it in neutral. And I coasted almost, I think to this day, a mile and a half. And I coasted off of the Bonnie Oaks exit. I couldn't believe it. I got, I got down the middle of the hill, and I was like, wait a minute. I'm still going 60, 62, 58, 60, 57, 56. And I, and I was like, I got one more hill. And I hit the hill, and then I hit the exit. And I was like, I'm toast. But the, the exit had a little bit of a grade to it. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I was like, this is amazing. And I looked, and there was a gas station about 300 yards ahead. I was like, there's no way. And I kept rolling. I kept rolling. I was like, this is an amazing story. And I was like, please, come on, please. And it kept rolling and rolling and rolling. I got to the pump. I coasted all the way down I-75, all the way to the gas pump. You know, what? I'm not proud of that. <laughs> but, and I don't want you to think that coasting brings you positive outcomes. Because I honestly think sometimes we, we sort of default to that in our Christian lives. We're just going to coast. Uh, what we're going to be looking at, you guys, is, is a passage that is, is beckoning us. It's, it's urging us. It's, it's calling us, and it's saying, look, don't coast. Don't coast. Don't. You know, if we look at the Christian life as if it's like, you know, either we're not Christians or we're coasting or we're this over here, the Christian life is called to be lived by faith. And I pray with all my heart that we would look into the mirror of God's word and that we would see that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is calling not only me, but you and our church family to live the Christian life trusting in the promises of God in real life as it relates to real circumstances, as it relates to what you're going through right now, 
as it relates to your trials, your sufferings, your family issues, your personal health problems, as it relates to the very core of who you are, God is calling you through his word, just as he was calling the people of the book of Hebrews. Walk with me, trust me, and by faith, let me let you see the reality of what my grace accomplishes. We're going to look at that really close next time, verse 1, 2, and 3. But I pray today that as we close, if you're playing this coasting, neutral game, that I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you would not only be convicted of your sin, you would confess, you would repent, and see that it's only by the grace of God you can respond. Would you bow your head? Lord, I thank you for my brothers and my sisters in Christ. I thank you, God, for our guests today. I pray, Lord, that everyone here, I pray, Lord, our hope and our trust would be in Jesus. Lord, you're our only way. Christ, you're the only way we can be forgiven. I pray, Lord, that no one in this room would would depend upon themselves as if they could somehow make themselves right with a holy God, make themselves right with you, Lord. But I pray, God, that, that all of us would, would, would see through the word that we need, we need a Savior. We need a Savior. But, Lord, I pray that, that everyone here would see that the way we receive that gift is, is, is by grace through faith. It's receiving it by faith. It's trusting in you. I pray that would be everyone here. But, Lord, I pray that, God, you would help us, God, through Hebrews 10 and 11. I pray that we would grow up in our faith. And, Lord, I pray we would learn what this means to live by faith, that, God, we would see that you basically give two alternatives, to shrink back or to walk by faith. And I pray, God, that that you would teach us what that looks like, what that means. And, Lord, I pray we would see that this is only possible through our great high priest. Lord, help us to understand this and learn. I pray, Lord, as we jump in more into Hebrews 11 next week, that we would look to you and trust you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.